Welcome everyone. We are going to do a case study for today's debrief. Instead of our typical debrief, we're going to transition over a little bit to, to case studies. This is going to be our first case study on the show, just because we're working off the, we're not working on the clock, we're not in the hospital. So it's a little bit more difficult to think of like a debrief, talk about our shift because we don't have issues to talk about. So we're going to slowly transition into case studies. We'll see how they go. If you guys like them, let us know, drop a comment, uh, let us know what you think, and we'll just keep doing these for a little bit. And I think this is great for anybody that's both a nurse, nursing student, to start developing critical thinking skills, what to expect, what to think about when you have a specific disease, this disease process. So we're going to introduce the first case study, which is going to be the history assessment, and we'll talk and ask questions throughout the whole thing. So... Let's see how it goes. So this case study involves a 76-year-old female named Betty Adams who presents to the ED accompanied by her son. She called her son after having symptoms of shortness of breath and confusion. Her past medical history includes hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and coronary artery disease. And she has an everyday smoking history of over 30 years. She reports her home medications are lisinopril, simvastatin, and baby aspirin. Her current lifestyle includes being a widow of six years. She lives alone. She walks her dog every day. She drives to her knitting group three times a week. She makes dinner for her grandchildren once a week. She attempts to eat her health uh, as healthy as possible, but she admits uh, consuming a high salty and high fat food diet. And she insists of being very independent. Mm. Right off the bat, when you hear someone's history or history like this, as a nurse, you're already thinking about what could be going on. You're already almost mentally diagnosing her and preparing yourself for the situation that's, that's going to come up. You, being like a, like a nurse with a lot of experience, you already know what the next steps are, are going to be. So before you even jump into an assessment, you could start to get a little bit more information from this, this patient just by asking questions. So we know she's a little bit confused, but we know that the son is also at the, at the bedside. So you get some, some more information because they're usually going to tell you just like the generic information, why, why they're here, a little bit of the history, but now it's like your time to dig a little bit deeper. So some good questions to always ask is, how long have these symptoms been occurring? Has it been a week? Is this something new? Has this happened today? What's been going on for the last couple of days? Another good question to ask is, has she been taking her medications? We know that she is on medications, but is she actually taking them and the right dosages and the right methods? And also a really good question is, has this happened before? Sometimes we'll have a patient come in with a family member that's having some kind of a symptoms. And when you ask, hey, has this happened to you before? Sometimes they say yes. And they tell you that, hey, this usually happens when I miss two doses of my LASIK. So you know, okay, well, has, this has happened before. You already kind of know what's going to happen again because these are the same as the systems as you came in last month or last two months, things like that. Um, and then you also want to ask, have there been any other unusual symptoms? Because they might list you a few symptoms, but it's always good to double verify and ask if there's anything else. Yeah, just looking at this, as this just presented the history, shortness of breath. So you're always either thinking issues with the heart or issues with the pulmonary system. Mm. Just looking at her medications, she's on a lot of heart medications, including simvastatin. She has hyperlipidemia and coronary artery disease. Potentially, this might be something cardiac related. Yeah. Another good question also, if you hear like some blood pressure medications or maybe some heart flow medications that people are typically on, it's always also good to ask if they weighed themselves recently, especially if they're coming from like this, which 
might, which kind of seems like fluid, fluid overload or some kind of a edema going on or, or even a heart failure, it's always good to ask, have they weighed themselves recently? Or if they, if, if they, you know, haven't, maybe ask them when they weighed themselves last, things like that. Because patients, if they're on certain medications, especially, especially on uh, like diuretics, I know this patient isn't, but if they, they are, most likely in their education or additional instruction is going to be to weigh themselves every day or every three days. And this would just give you another uh, symptom, you could say, or, or something else to kind of look at to validate your data. Let's go into the assessment. So Betty Adams' initially, initial vital signs in her ED include a blood pressure of 138 over 70, heart rate of 108, her respiratory rate is 26, temperature is 98.9 Fahrenheit, and oxygen saturation is 84%. Her initial assessment included alert and oriented to person and place, dyspnea, inspiratory crackles in bilateral lungs, and a cough with pink froggy sputum. Her labs and diagnostic results is a BMP of 740, an echocardiogram showing an ejection fraction of 35%, an ECG that read sinus tachycardia, and a chest x-ray that confirmed pulmonary edema. Yeah, just by hearing that, you hear a lot of things that are not within normal limits. The blood pressure is high, heart rate is, is high, respiratory rate is high, oxygen is low, BNP, even, even if you don't know what BNP represents or, or um, the normal value for it, 740, 740 just seems like a high number. So right off the bat, it seems like that's high. And also her, her EF, it looks like it's low to me. If you think of EF as your ejection fraction, so you want that to be as high as possible. So think of ejection fraction as as the amount your amount of blood your your or amount of blood your heart pumps out, right? So, thirty five percent. So if you think about it logically, if you're pushing out only thirty five percent of your of your blood, that doesn't seem like it's like it's like it's too good. Uh, right, normal going on. Yeah, normal EF is usually about fifty percent, maybe seventy five percent, depending on the patient status and and the age. And of course, the lung sounds they don't sound normal. And even the uh, chest X ray is showing us some kind of abnormality. In this case, it's pulmonary edema. Yeah, so some differential diagnosis you might be thinking for Betty is CHF, and that's pretty significant. They're thinking about there's pink froggy sputum coming out. How else does that happen? Pneumonia, since she does have crackles. Pulmonary edema, so she might be fluid overloaded. She's short of breath, and her oxygen saturation is 84%. And just like you mentioned, the big things there is just the EF that's low and the BMP that kind of gives it away, including the O2. Mm-hmm. And you also might be asking questions during this assessment is what factors contributed to her CHF? So you might be asking about her smoke history, and she did say she smokes every day. Her hypertension. So in the hospital, it's pretty decent, 138 over 70. She's technically stage one, and Mm -hmm. she's already on some medication. So how has it been controlled outside of the hospital? How how is her diet? Because they always say, you know, three to four drinks, and it's always times 1.5 to 2, like the INR with heparin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you have hyperlipidemia and CAD, coronary artery disease, that's already contributing factor to her CHF. Yeah. So she's, you know, it looks like she's pretty uh, predisposed to this CHF. So it's, it's a pretty valid conclusion to guess that it's kind of some kind of a CHF or some kind of a fluid overload. But now is it right-sided heart failure or is it left-sided heart failure? So now the ED physician walks in, and for those of you that have guessed, that's left-sided heart failure, the ED doc diagnosed Betty with left-sided heart failure. So now a question for y'all is, what medications are we thinking of administering for this left-sided heart failure? This is going to be your giant list of blood pressure and cardiac meds. 
The most common ones are going to be your ACE inhibitors. Uh, these are your, you could say, prills, your lisinopril, enalapril. And the way these work is they work by relaxing blood vessels and also help remodeling of, of, of the heart. So it's basically symptom management for, for, for this lady. Another one you might administer is aldosterone antagonist, which block the action of aldosterone, which is a hormone your adrenal glands produce. Uh, by stopping aldosterone, these drugs can cause your kidneys to put extra water and salt into your pee. So this is going to be your spironolactone. So spironolactone is an aldosterone antagonist, but it also is, is a diuretic. And aldosterone antagonist is essentially uh, similar to like your basic uh, diuretic. Another one you could do is your most common one, beta blocker. It decreases your heart rate and your blood pressure. So it's going to decrease the workload of your heart. These are your allos, which is your metoprolol, the metoprolol and carvodilol, anything that ends with that kind of an ending. And one that we don't see as much, but I mean, I still see it fairly often. Like in nursing school, they told us they're not gonna see it very often, but I still see it fairly often. This is your digoxin. And digoxin is a cardiac glycosidicin. Uh, it's also just helps helps control the heart rate. Sometimes we give it for like AFib, any kind of arrhythmias, it kind of helps uh, just to control that, that rate and that rhythm. And then your last one is going to be your diuretics, which is your furosemide or your bumetanine, like your Bumex, if it's really bad. So diuretics just help you get rid of excess fluid in your vessels. And the second question is to be asking what nursing interventions you are thinking about having when you have a patient with heart failure. So the way I like to see it is always use your ABCs, airway breathing circulation, to see what your patient needs firsthand. And we know that the patient is setting 84%. So let's give some supplement to O2 as needed. You want to encourage rest. This patient is probably fatigued, dirty, shorter breath, high fowler's position, and that's to drain the edema in the legs. You're going to have frequent assessments. She's since she's alert in order to place. Is it place in time? Yeah, I think it's place in time. Place in time. You know, times two. I got to think about what my patient is doing right now. You know, like sometimes you forget the patient's ain't no time. Usually this happens during night shift. You have like three or four patients like, oh, which one's confused? Yeah. Which one's not? Or a med surgery, you got like four of them. Yeah. You know, they're all different. So yeah, frequent assessments based on what's happening. You want to administer medications as needed that Peter just mentioned. You're going to place the patient on fluid restrictions. So strict I's and O's. You want to see how much the weight is decreasing, how much you're dumping out when you're giving Lasix. You're also hoping that this, you have an order for a Foley or maybe put a condom cath on hopefully or if it's a female Purex because you're going to be changing the chucks quite frequently. And you're going to monitor electrolytes for imbalances as far as rhythm changes in daily labs. If you're giving uh, diuretics, you're thinking about potassium, making sure it's above 3.5 throughout the patient's hospital stay. And then, of course, patient education as an intervention things that it gets neglected the most because all the tasks they have to do, but you need to educate the patient of why they're here and how to prevent them from coming back for this congestive heart failure. Yep, exactly. And if you're working in a hospital or your nursing school, some of the orders you might see um, in, your, in, in your chart, it could say supplemental oxygen, titrate to keep saturation above 93%. You might see some late six IV uh, ordered, maybe some anoxaparin, sub-Q, prevent any kind of blood clots, and also metoprolol PO. So that's kind of how the order set might go. And we're thinking nursing interventions, if you can only really think of any, we'll go through through the, some other ones that we have written down over here. So your orders could say monitoring oxygen saturation, adjusting oxygen route and dosage according to orders, assessing mentation and confusion, obtaining IV access, reassessing vitals, administering medications, 
keeping the head of bed elevated greater than 45 degrees. And now um, she most likely will get admitted to like a telefloor for further kind of stabilization or further monitoring. You wouldn't want to put a patient like Betty on a floor, like just like a med surge floor with no monitoring because we know that her blood pressure was elevated and also her heart rate was, was elevated. So we want to know that the heart rate isn't continually increasing. And we also want to know that her O2 sats are improving because her O2 sats were pretty low, 83%. So this is a little bit more of, of an acute patient. You want to have some kind of a monitoring uh, placed on this patient. Yeah, and I just want to also mention that you work the cardiac units. If the patient's heart failure or EF is very low, they're just more prone to having funky rhythms, especially being flu fluid overloaded. So you want to put them to the tele floor. Yeah. On day one of the hosp uh, hospital admission, Betty Adams required four liters of oxygen via nasal cannula in order to maintain the goal saturation above 93%. Upon assessment, it was determined that she was oriented to person in place. Oscillation of the lungs revealed bilateral crackles throughout, requiring a collaboration with respiratory therapy once in the morning and once in the afternoon. Physical therapy worked with the patient, but she was only able to ambulate 100 feet. During ambulation, the patient had a decreased oxygen saturation and dyspnea, requiring her oxygen to be increased to 6 liters. At the end of the day, strict intake and output monitoring showed an intake of 1,200 with a urinary output of 2 liters. So it looks like uh, day one's going pretty pretty good. It's not... It's it's not uh, doesn't seem like it's downtrending. I know she's on oxygen, but guess what? O2 sats are above ninety three percent, and she actually got up, worked with PT for a little bit. She did get shortness of breath, and we had to kind of relax and and um, and just calm her down a little bit, had to let her relax. But still, she's still moving. She's still talking. She's standing fine. Yes, she still has some abnormal lung sounds, but the fact that she's seems like she's getting a little bit more stable. Um, is definitely a good sign. And also she's putting out more than she's taken in. She took in 1,200 mLs and she put out two liters. So the direct therapy is 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 working. So I'm guessing within the next couple of days, we're going to see these advantageous lung sounds kind of start to diminish. She's probably going to start mentating a little bit better and the vitals are starting to go, are starting to finally kind of trend to her, to her baseline. Right, and hopefully we could get her off this oxygen where she's not so dyspneic. Mm -hmm. And it's just day one. So the medications just are starting to work because... If it's day three, everything's better, and she's still dyspneic like this or high O2, we might have to do like a home O2 e valve to see if she could, you know, let's take the oxygen uh, oxygen off, see how she's saturated to see if she needs home O2. Yeah, and it's, it's nice that that uh, on day one, everybody works together. You had PT come in, you had um, um, respiratory come in, work with the patient. That's always good to see. I know working nights, sometimes you don't see the whole teamwork, but usually this is, this is how it flows. You have patient that gets admitted, you start to work on them right away. You want to get respiratory therapy involved right off the bat. You know, she came in with these adaptation lung sounds, wasn't in the best state, and you also want to get her moving, walking around more because that's just going to kind of speed things speed things up yeah. a little bit. Um, on day two of admission, Betty Adams began demonstrating signs of improvement. She only requires two liters of oxygen if you nasal cannula with diminished crackles heard upon auscultation. Morning weight showed a weight loss of 1.3 pounds, and the patient was oriented to person, place, and sequence of events. During physical therapy, she was able to ambulate 300 feet without requiring increased oxygen support. Daily fluid intake was 14 milliliters, 1400 milliliters with the urinary output of 1900 milliliters. All right, so all progression, mm -hmm. less oxygen. We're still dumping that fluid off her with her eyes and nose, and she's making progress. Mm -hmm. She lost 1.3 pounds. You know that we're doing daily weights, so. Mm -hmm. Ambulate a little bit more, all good stuff. Betty's doing great. Mm -hmm. 
On the third and final day of admission, Betty Adams was anal attempts four and did not require any type of oxygen support. When physical therapy arrived, the patient was able to ambulate 500 feet, which was close to her pre-hospital status. When a doctor arrived, the patient informed him that she felt much better and felt confident in going home. Doctor placed orders for discharge. So the question right now is, what discharge planning education will Betty need? As you know, she is a congestive heart failure patient. So big thing is diet and medication education. How is her salt intake? What is causing her to increase weight, causing her to have congestive heart failure, shortness of breath? And plus, it seems like upon mission, she was not really compliant with her diet because she it just stated that she was eating poorly before she coming in. Yeah. Signs and symptoms of what causes exacerbation to know when she should check herself in. Daily weights and the drug parameters. Sometimes they'll be for like mentoprol or they'll give you like a lisinopril, like take it if it's above 140. How to check your blood pressure and pulse. Education on exercise and then follow up to the MD. In this case, it's probably going to be your primary doctor and a cardiologist. Yeah, and this is definitely a, a day shift thing. We don't really do too much discharging on, on nights. Nope. And yeah. if it does happen, I'm asking the chargers, like, how do I do this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Especially as a traveler, every hospital has such a different way of discharging sometimes. Yeah, for real. And then just to close this off, so upon discharge, and uh, what was that word? Throughout? Throughout the patient's oh, hospital. Throughout. throughout. Okay, <laughs> upon discharge and throughout the patient's hospital stay, Betty Adams was educated regarding the disease process of heart failure, symptoms to monitor for and report to her doctor, the importance of daily monitoring of weight, blood pressure, and heart rate, and the importance of adhering to a diet and exercise regime. So it looks like we hit the nail on the head. Education was also provided regarding her medications and the importance of strictly adhering to them in order to prevent exacerbations of heart failure. Smoking cessation was also included in her plan of care. The patient received an informational packet regarding her treatment plan, symptoms to monitor for, and went to call her physician. Upon discharge, the patient was instructed to schedule a follow-up appointment with her cardiologist for a continued management of her care. So yeah, so it seems like all this education that we don't do on nights, we knew that it was supposed to be done. Yes. Respect. That we don't do, huh? Yeah. <laughs> I plead the fifth. <laughs> so the patient was put in contact with home health agency to help manage her care. The home, home health nurse will help to reinforce the information provided to the patient, assess the patient's home, and modify it to meet her physical limitations, and help to create a plan to meet the daily dietary and exercise requirements. Regular follow-up appointments were stressed to Betty Adams in order to assess in the progression of her disease. It will be important to monitor her lab values, assess her disease progression, and for potential side effects associated with her medications. Repeat echocardiogram will be necessary to monitor her ejection fraction. If it does not improve with the treatment plan, an implanted cardiac defibrillator may be necessary to prevent cardiac death. Wonderful. Well, we wish Betty Adams the best. Hopefully she takes this chance to, you know, better her lifestyle and, you know, maybe start changing a few things in her life. Yeah. And these are patients that could become frigging flyers in the hospital that you work at because it's so easy to not read food labels eat some chili. I remember a patient got discharged and he ate like three slices, three slices of pizza and a chili bowl. He's like, I'm back here and <laughs> short of breath. So it's just so easy when you just have a processed diet, how easy it is to fall back and patients coming for the same thing. And they're always just like, I don't know how this happened. And again, just need more education. Yeah. Lots of re-education because we literally tell these patients the same thing over and over again. And sometimes it's like talking to a wall. 
they say they understand, they sign a paperwork, yeah, this, yeah, that, and they come back for the same exact thing. I used to get a lot of readmissions all the time when I used to work in, work in Illinois just for the, the same, same stuff, exacerbation. And somehow the patient doesn't know why there's exacerbation. And it's like, you know, this is only happening because you're doing it to yourself. Yeah. But if, if there's any nursing students out there listening to this episode, what I would do if I was in your shoes, I would probably listen to the, the story that, that we tell, pause it, maybe think about what's going on. And then when Matt and I ask a question, another, another pause, just so you kind of brainstorm and think of how you would answer, answer these questions. That's a good way to put it. And just to see if what your mind is, if your mind is kind of, I'm trying to word it, connecting the dots mm. of what we're thinking to see where your critical thinking skills are. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you guys for tuning in. If you guys like these case studies, let us know. If you have any questions, let us know. Uh, we're going to keep doing these for as long as we deem necessary until we have more <laughs> nurses on the field. Till further ado, man. Peace. Bye-bye.